Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. When it comes to big or small projects around the home, Tony and Corey have got the know-how and the answers to make your life just a bit easier. Here they are, your Weekend Warriors, Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. I'm Corey Valdez. And I'm Tony Cookston. Thanks for tuning in with us today. We've got another great show lined up for you today. Tony, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to talk about today? today. We're going to talk about things to consider when building a deck. That's right. Which is it happens a lot here in the Pacific Northwest. I assume, I haven't been abroad very much, but I assume there's a lot of deck building across the nation. <laughs> well, yeah. But uh, I know the necessity for decks everywhere. But I know that here in the Pacific Northwest, being an employee of Par Lumber Company as we are, we see building materials go out the door and decking is a very large percentage of the material that we sell. It is absolutely one of those projects that is I get I guarantee every single day of the year there is a deck being built in Portland somewhere. Yep, absolutely. I agree with that completely. And because decks are so common, a lot of times it's one of the first projects, one of the first serious projects that a homeowner wants to take on of their own accord. Yeah. They, I get that a lot. Yeah, they want to jump right in and do that project. And you know what? I it's a weekend warrior project. I agree. Sometimes. I agree. A lot I, of times. I encourage that, and I think that it's great, but it can be a lot easier if you have, well, a lot of information about what you're going to do going into the project. Right. Sometimes if you're learning how to do what you're going to do during doing it, it can cost you more than, than it needs to, take you longer than it should. And, you know, result in more frustration than is absolutely necessary. Well, and I think there's things to consider when attempting a deck on your own and attempting or, or not, you know, hiring a contractor to come in and do it for you. Right. I think there's that fine line of, yes, this is a weekend warrior project or, man, this is well beyond my scope. I need to call in a professional. And we'll talk about some of those today, what are, some of those differences are. Uh, things to consider. I mean, like, for instance, the easiest one, the first one, the location. Yeah. Where are you going to build this deck? Absolutely. And to me, it truly depends. Uh, that location is a lot to do, has a lot to do with the materials that you're going to use in it. Right. It's going to determine so many things for you. How big does it need to be? Um you know, how far off the ground is it? Does it require a handrail? Is it underneath a bunch of trees? Are there special things that you have to do to it and and things that you have to do to the ground and all of those? Yeah, so how big and difficult the project is always starts with where you're going to put it and how it's going to serve you. That's right. And then some of the things, the other things that you need to consider are permits, for example, CCNRs. Are you even able to construct the deck that you want on your own property because you're part of a homeowner's association. And that homeowner's association has bylaws or rules that says, no, you can't build a deck that's larger than this. Right. Or you can't build a deck in this area because it's visible from the street. I mean, there's all kinds of weird rules in CCNRs that you just need to be aware of before you jump in and just go to town designing and building it only to have to tear it back down. Right, and not just that jurisdiction, but here's another one for you. What if your house is on the uh, historic registry? 
what if you've got a house that was built in 1918 or something like that? It's on the registry. You're tied to a whole bunch of rules about what you can do, what materials you can use, how big it can be, and what it's supposed to look like when it's done. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And so, and then, of course, there's like you just said, there's permits. Permits are going to be uh, the same thing. You have to meet certain requirements and it has to be built in a certain way. And you have to use certain structural components in order to make sure that it's safe and strong and all of that. So permits is another thing. You have to do it a certain way based on what you're permitted to do. Yeah. And as far as permits go, it's going to be different. Every jurisdiction is going to be different across the United States. So it is up to you to call your local jurisdiction and ask, hey, I'm building a deck. Uh, It's two feet off the ground and it's X amount of square feet. Do I need a permit? And they would say yes or no. And sometimes, for instance, I had a, a contractor of mine who didn't know. It was like right at that edge of maybe it needed a permit, but maybe it didn't. So the inspector actually came out to the house. And he walked it with him and said, this is where I'm going to construct the deck. And the guy said, nope, you're good to go. No permit required. Hmm. So, and it was at like seven feet, right? So that's where he was kind of questioned on if it it was so high off the ground. Sure. Did it need, you know, drawings and engineering and permits? Because it is my understanding in our area that if it's over eight feet tall, then it does require uh, engineering drawings, professional drawings, and a permit. Mm-hmm. And there is some... Maybe not professional drawings. You can probably draw them yourself. Sometimes you can. Yeah, sometimes they'll say, well, this doesn't show me this cross-section, or this doesn't show me this elevation, or this doesn't show me what you're using in this place to solve this situation. So even if you draw them yourself, they could send them back and say, I need more information. I mean, it's, it's not assumable that you can scratch something out on a piece of paper with a pencil and take it in there and it's going to be enough. Sometimes they require some pretty good detail. No, I totally agree with you. But, you know, on the other hand, you could go in there and talk to them. And a lot of times they have on file uh, standard drawings for a deck and that they'll give to you. I mean, I know for a fact in certain areas around here that you can do that. You can walk in and say, hey, I'm building a deck and I need per- to pull permits on it. And they'll give you sample drawings of all the things that you need. Ah, cool. That makes things easier, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, a lot easier. It's definitely something that you need to consider. Permits is something you need to consider because there is a cost associated with it. Right. The cost to have the drawings drawn, if that's what you have to do to have them engineered and stamped if that's what you need to do. And of course, the cost of the permit itself. So there is cost associated with that. So knowing whether or not your deck needs to be permitted ahead of time will help you budget for your deck. Also, you don't want to avoid the permit process just because it costs more money. Because if you are building the deck or complete the deck and somebody from the building department gets wind (laughs) And that doesn't have to be because they saw it. Sometimes it can be because somebody called and they can say, they can come along and say, hey, guess what? You don't have a permit for that. That could result in a fine or in a worst case scenario, they could make you take it down. Yeah. You know, and on the worst end of that spectrum, you build it and say, you didn't know how to build it 
uh, sufficiently strong enough and say there was a collapse, something happened and somebody got injured, seriously injured, you're on the hook 100% because you didn't do the proper steps in getting that permit, making sure that the beams were sized correctly, the be- you know the posts were sized correctly and all of that stuff. So I wouldn't mess around with it. No, I definitely wouldn't either. You just need to budget the project and make sure that you include the permitting, the potential permitting process in your budget so that you don't find yourself short. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, more things to consider when building a deck. You're listening to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for sticking around. Today, Tony and I are talking about decks. And it's one of those subjects that it doesn't seem like there's a lot there, right? <laughs> you you know, you know, you come in to a par lumber company, you say, Yeah, I need to build a deck. You sir, you quickly find out that they're gonna the salesperson there is gonna ask you a ton of questions, and you need to know the answers to them. So a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today are A, uh, questions that you might get from a salesperson at Par Lumber, but also questions that you need to ask yourself before you walk into a Par Lumber company right. or call a contractor. You know, they're going to call you up and have all of these questions and you're going to, if you don't know the answers, they're going to maybe get a one over on you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There are a lot of things to consider when building a deck. When we, in the last step, in the last segment we were talking about the location of your deck, which answers a lot of questions, but also raises some more questions. So staying with that, uh, the location of the deck, you have to determine what's going on with your house in that location that's going to affect the deck. Here was something that I mentioned uh, during the break with Corey was, does the where, where you want to put the deck, is there access to the house on the deck? A lot of times people will put the deck off of their patio door or off of a master bedroom door or anyways a door that goes outside the house if you are building a first story deck and you want to be able to access the deck from a patio door or uh, an otherwise exterior door from the house you need to determine the distance between the bottom of the door and the ground for example on Corey's house the patio door there's only about four inches from the patio door, the bottom of the patio door, to the ground. Corey could not possibly, feasibly, put a deck underneath his patio door. No, not at all. He would have to step out of the patio door up to the surface of the deck in order to have the substructure and the decking um, outside of that patio door. So he has to be thinking about, do I want to step up or do I want to move my deck over so that it's not... Um, directly accessed by that patio door. It's one really good example. Or do you need to dig down? I mean, I've seen situations where somebody had a patio, the same exact situation as mine, where it's almost level with the rear, you know, your your slider, your rear slider. 
but it's so close to the ground that you physically can't put any sort of wood substructure there and any sort of decking down. It's just not enough room, no matter how you look at it. So I've seen people dig down, uh, maybe jackhammer out the patio, dig down a little bit, excavate some of that material away, and then put in a deck. Yeah, you wouldn't have to excavate your entire uh, space where the deck is going to be because um, when your home is built, code requires that the elevation of your ground fall away from the house at a certain rate. Uh, so as the ground leaves the foundation of your home and goes out into your yard, right, it drops down. So if you have a deck that's going out 12 feet, the ground has likely dropped um, six inches over 12 mm -hmm, feet mm -hmm. or maybe one foot over 12 foot. And then by the time you get out to the end of the deck, your substructure is up over the ground again and still now it needs to be sit on posts, which sit on piers, which sit on, you know, whatever. So, uh, so you would just have to do some excavating there. And if that means, like you said, jackhammering out the patio, I mean, that's something that you need to consider before you decide that that's where you want to put your deck. Yeah, I mean, and it's not completely out of the norm. You know, a lot of people want to put in a deck because, say, the patio that they have is only 10 foot by 10 foot. You know, it's this little teeny, you know, builder quality pad that's been sitting back there since they bought the house 15 years ago. And now they want an outdoor living area. Well, it's not that difficult to jackhammer up a piece of concrete 10 foot by 10 foot. Getting rid of it's kind of difficult. But <laughs> well, it's just money, right? Yeah, I mean, you're just, you know, lifting it up. I've seen people lift it up with crowbars, hit it with a hammer, you know, a sledgehammer, and it breaks into pieces. And it goes into a dumpster. Yeah, you either rent one or you load it into a truck. Some people, honestly, you could even load up it on, uh, put it on Craigslist. Some people want free pieces of concrete. Interesting. Weird. For fill or something, maybe. Yeah, for whatever reason, <laughs> whatever so they want. Here's the opposite of that. And the opposite of that, if you've got a back patio door or an, an exit from the house and there's a concrete patio there, well, if you've got about seven inches or maybe eight inches between the bottom of your door, the floor to your house and the ground, well, you could potentially use that concrete patio to your advantage because you would not need to put posts or piers underneath that part of the deck there because the concrete patio would serve as your foundation there. So there's an opportunity to use the patio and not have to dig it out and throw it away, but you have to have enough room to get the substructure in there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's called putting it on sleepers. Yeah. Sleepers is what that's called. You put down uh, as small amount, you know, two by PT, you could use two by four PT. Uh, and sometimes you can even rip PT down uh, to create the slope. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do there. It's not impossible. Since you mentioned that, something to something to note, if you do need to rip your joist in order to fit in that space, you'll need to make sure that you use end cut solution to treat that um, bare edge of that treated plywood because concrete is porous, it holds water, and that will transfer to your wood and can rot your wood, will rot your wood, if it's not uh, treated. So end cut solution would be a good solution there. That is a common misconception with PT lumber, that people think that it's indestructible. It's just never going to rot. And that is not the case. Uh, pressure treated wood is manufactured in a way that they put it in a machine, like a high pressure tank, and it's pressurized. That's why it's called PT, pressure treated. They pump the chemical in there. Well, that chemical can only go so far into the wood fiber, especially in bigger timbers. But even in a two by four, it doesn't penetrate all the way through. 
So the core of the material of the wood left exposed is gonna rot. Right. And it's pressure still treated, treated wood in there, yeah. Over time will rot. Yeah. So you just have to treat it correctly. Like Tony said, the end cuts, it's super important. It definitely lasts a lot longer, but if you've cut into uh, the quick of that material, even treated lumber, there is no treatment there in the middle there. So you have to make sure you retreat that uh, with an end cut solution. It's a spray on end cut solution. Yeah. Uh, another thing when we were talking about location and you said access, patio door, you know, you said something about windows and it's something to keep in mind on where you're going to build the deck is also where you're going to put the posts. If you're putting in a second story deck and you've got a patio exit door downstairs and you're putting in a deck right over top of it, consider maybe some, think about the drainage, waterproofing that deck. I mean, it's all a possibility to have that deck act as a roof. But also keep in mind, if you have windows down there, putting posts right in front of them. Right. I mean, I've seen many decks designed where they post down right in front of a window. That's going to frustrate you. You definitely don't want to look out the window right at the structure of your deck. Yeah. You want to make sure that you're posting off to each side and then use a, a beam between the two posts to carry that load so that you're not dropping a post in front of a window. Absolutely. Or a patio door. I always say to my customers when they're looking at building a deck, either uh, on, on a new construction or uh, an old home, like a remodel, and they're adding a deck, sometimes they'll want to span long spans with big pieces of wood, six by 12, or even a pressure treated glue lamb. They want to span it, you know, 14, 16, 20 feet because they want to put a post over here and a post over here. And sometimes there's nothing down there. I'm like, what? I always say, why are you trying to overspan a heavy beam when you could easily add posts down there? Mm -hmm. The only time I see that situation viable is if you have a second story deck with living space or something underneath it that you want that span to not have posts in it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Here's another one, less often, but still happens, especially in older homes. If you're building a second story deck and you've got a window on uh, that's a second story window, one of those windows might go into your bathroom and a second story oh, window yeah. into a bathroom a lot of times isn't obscured. So do you really want a window to your bathroom that's not obscured, that's now accessible to your second story deck? Just put the table right next to it. <laughs> I'm guessing probably not. We gotta take another quick break. When we come back, more things to consider when building a deck. Don't go away. show built by par lumber now here's tony and Corey. hey welcome back to the weekend warriors home improvement show thanks for sticking around hey if you haven't already tony and i are on facebook instagram and youtube pinterest at, and pinterest we're at ww home show so go check that out hit subscribe hit like Follow us, all that stuff. We post a lot of fun things on there. So uh, we'd love to have you on there. If you ever have any questions or comments, you can email us at weekendwarriors at par.com. Or you can click on, uh, if you go to par.com, that's P-A-R-R, -R, click on the Weekend Warriors link. 
You can also find us that way. Yep, absolutely. So today in the show, we've been talking about things to consider when building a deck. And uh, so far, we've been talking about location, uh, permits, CCNRs, um, access. That's uh, where and how are you going to access the deck. If you're considering putting a deck higher than two or three feet off the ground, you're probably going to be looking at stairs. That's definitely something to think about where you're going to want to have the stairs to access the backyard. You know, are you got to think also about rise over run. How long are those stairs going to be? I mean, if you're six feet off the ground, you got to consider each step is 11 inches. So six, you know, you got to think about rise. So you have seven inches. So you take six feet divided by seven inches is it gives you your the amount of stairs times 11 inches that's how far away you need to protrude away from the deck if you've so, got a second story deck and you're going to take one flight of stairs all the way down to the ground level and it's just one straight run you're going to be 15 feet away from the deck by the time you get yeah, down there it's something to consider yeah so and if you don't want that you can always put in a landing Right, you'd be come down halfway, landing, and back the other direction, which puts you closer to uh, directly underneath the deck. So those are things that you have to consider if you're building a second-story deck and you're going to need to put stairs in. Here's something else, Corey, design. You think that um, design is simply choosing your type of decking and your handrail, potentially, but there's so much more than that. Uh, the way that decks are built these days, a lot of times, for example, with picture framing, They'll take two different colors of composite decking, take one color, an accent color, and picture frame the deck around the outside, and then use an, another color to fill in in the field in between. If you're going to do that, then you have to consider that during the substructure of the deck. Yes, you do. Because you'll have to put extra nailers in there in order to fasten that the same way. Here's another thing. On my patio, I have a six-foot wraparound patio around my house. And in the corner where where the two different directions come together there at the L, I put a six foot by six foot design. I framed it in. I picture framed a little design and then I ran the decking at a 45 degree angle in order to give the deck a little bit of character, which I absolutely love that corner of the deck. It looks really good. I had to put a lot of blocking in there in order to fasten it the way it needed to be fastened. But I'm glad that I gave that the thought ahead of time because the way the decking finished out is gorgeous. So you need to think about the design and what you want to do with your deck ahead of time. Here's another thing. When you're thinking about the design, are you going to have like a hot tub on top of the deck? You'll want to consider that during the substructure portion as well, because you'll want to beef up the frame of the deck underneath where the hot tub is going to be to carry that all of that weight of that water. Yeah, a lot of times if you're going to put a hot tub on a deck, you'll definitely want to consult with an engineer. Uh, they'll ask you questions like how big it is, you know, and they'll calculate how much water goes into it, how much that dead load is going to weigh, and be able to add that to the deck and make sure that it's strong enough to support it. Uh, another thing to consider, Tony, is the type of materials that you're going to use. Are you going to use wood, hardwood, uh, composite decking? You have to kind of think about that up front because if you're framing a deck, if you're building it with, or, or you're going to use composite decking, you have to be a minimum of 16 inch on center with your joists. And if you're uh, putting hardwood, you can be up to 24 inches. 
and two by six cedar, let's say you can also be 24 inches. So you wouldn't want to get in there and frame the whole thing 24 on center and think to yourself, oh shoot, now I want composite. Mm -hmm. well, now you're going back and adding joists. So think about that up front. We're gonna, we'll talk a little bit about how to choose composite decking a little bit later, but uh, that's definitely something I wanted to mention. Yeah, here's another one. If when you're deciding where your deck is gonna be, it's important to determine whether or not you can put a ledger board on the house so that you can attach the deck to the house. If where you want your deck to be, you can't ledger from the house for one reason or another, then you're building now a freestanding deck, which has to be posted up at all four corners and gets built a different way. The substructure is built a different way if you're not ledgering from the house. Also notable here, if you have a manufactured home, a lot of times they won't permit you to ledger from a manufactured home. Yeah, that makes sense. That totally makes sense if the, because the substructure inside of a manufactured home isn't the same sometimes as a conventional framed home. So you don't have that the same stability for a ledger than you would normal. Yeah, so it, it might. Yeah, but if, it might if you not. if you have to build your deck freestanding, not attached, that definitely changes the substructure. So something that you'll have to consider during the design uh, portion of your preparation. Yeah, some other stuff you'd want to consider too is the condition of the ground that you're building it on. Uh, maybe think about drainage. If you have some drain pipes coming through there. You have to be careful, especially if you're using pier pads, that the water doesn't, you know, erode the ground under your deck, potentially causing uh, undermining of your piers, and then the deck could potentially collapse or sink in uh, many areas under that deck. So you just got to be careful there. If you have water or drainage coming down in there, consider rerouting it or putting in you know, piping that could, you know, put it elsewhere, that would drain it elsewhere. Also notable, if your deck is far enough off the ground that you can access it from the ground level, the underneath space, uh, maybe you're not going to have a living space there, but maybe you could utilize it as a place for storage. It's a good idea to treat the ground the way that it needs to be treated prior to building your deck uh, in order to facilitate some storage underneath there. If your deck is far off the ground, it's not necessary really to cover the ground with a moisture barrier. But if your deck is going to be close to the ground, say 12 inches or 14 inches off the ground, it's a really good idea to put a visqueen, a heavy six mil black visqueen on the ground to cover the ground if your deck is close because those weeds can spring up and pop right up through your deck and weeding that can be a challenge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing you want to consider there too is if it is super close to the ground, you have to consider ventilation. A lot of deck manufacturers, especially composite ones, will tell you that it has to be a certain amount of distance off the ground and that a certain amount of ventilation uh, needs to be open. Say it has to be open on uh, two or three sides because that decking will heat up and expand in the in the uh, heat of the day but the uh, air underneath slowly heats up so then what happens is when it gets cold the outside air gets super cold but the air underneath is still pretty warm and that'll cause massive temperature changes uh, in that decking and sometimes it'll buckle and you have a lot of problems there and it's not warranted 
Right. Yep, absolutely. If it's done incorrectly, I should say. Uh, another thing to consider underneath the deck before you start to build it is whether or not you're going to have lights. If you're going to put lights on your deck or run any type of uh, electrical, even if it's low voltage, it's going to be a lot easier to place that wire before you build the deck and enclose it. Um, so choosing lighting after the deck is already built, while it can be done, is a lot more difficult. You're going to want to make that decision about lighting ahead of time, and then you can uh, you can run that electrical wire underneath the deck before you build it. Yeah, it's a good idea to get a sense of what you want to do ahead of time. And I know budget has a lot to do with it, so that is something you need to consider. Uh, but definitely, like Tony said, you don't want to rule it out until it's too late. Yeah. Uh, and another thing to think about is what's growing in the backyard like trees. You'll have to address that as well. Don't go away. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tony Core, your weekend warriors. Hang in there. You're listening to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for sticking around. Today, we're talking about things to consider when building a deck. Uh, we were kind of going over in the first few segments about location, permits, CCNRs, access, a ground condition. It's something to think about if your ground is on a super big slope or if it's covered in, uh, you know, trees. Is it is it uh, also backfill? Is it backfill dirt and is it good and compacted or is it native soil that's going to give you a really good structure for your posts to stand in? That's something that you also need to consider. Yeah, especially if you're building a deck that's, you know, in my opinion, three, four, five feet off the ground. You definitely want to look at that a little closer. Uh, I know that you may not have to have permits when it's only four or five feet off the ground, but, you know, if it starts collapsing, A, that deck is costing you a lot of money to build, so you want to make sure it's built right. Uh, but if you have any sort of uh, malfunction or, or fatal error, fatal error, a failure, <laughs> I'm talking about computers now, a failure on that deck, then it could potentially be um, a much bigger problem for you. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. Uh, something we didn't consider uh, that you will want to consider when you're determining your design and your location before you start to build the sub substructure of your deck, is any portion of this deck going to be covered? Maybe you're building a deck and you want to have a cover of the whole thing. Uh, that's something that you'll want to know because the posts that you'll be posting down from your deck cover will be interacting with your deck. So you'll either want to make sure that you have built your cover before you deck or with your substructure. A lot of times you can tie the substructure right into the porch cover posts. So that needs to be part of the design, something you're thinking about before you actually start building the substructure. And I know a lot of times porch covers are built after the deck is already there. And that's one situation, but it certainly is going to be stronger and serve you better if you consider tying the two together when you build. Yeah, no, it's a, a definitely a, a better way to build, in my opinion, versus building a substructure and then building another structure on top of that structure. If you can build it all as one, 
like use the deck posts as the support for the roof, that's, that is a much better way to build. Absolutely. And then that just makes your handrail stronger. You can, you can tie your handrail in with your porch posts and, and that all works really good. So thinking about that ahead of time will save you frustration and money and make it even a better structure. Absolutely. So let's dig in a little bit to the actual substructure. Um, there's a lot of things with the materials that you use that could potentially be right or wrong. Uh, the, the number one thing you want to consider is using pressure-treated lumber to build the deck with. I get this question a lot, believe it or not. People come in and say, well, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I just want to save some money on it. I just want to build a deck. And I've seen plenty of decks built out of non-pressure-treated wood, and they don't last. They honestly don't last. So if you're building a deck, you say, I only want it there temporarily. Sure, I get it. Especially in the valley, right? Yeah. You were talking about how uh, moisture underneath the deck, because it's warm under the deck and cold out, uh, you know, in the ambient air is cold outside the deck. So you end up with a lot of moisture underneath there, especially in the valley. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit different. In the Bend area or in northern Washington, I think, where we get some drier sort of climates. Yeah, but that's um, different. But in, in this case, this is what I hear, Corey. Customers come in. Of course, everybody's on a budget, and they're looking to do it as inexpensively as possible. And they say to me, do I really need to use pressure-treated lumber? And we say, well, pressure-treated lumber is rated for ground contact. And then they say, well, most of it's not touching the ground. My joists aren't <laughs> touching the ground. And if my beams are in concrete, they're not touching the ground. Or my posts, I mean, are in concrete, they're not touching the ground. And the beams aren't touching the ground. If it's not touching the ground, does it really need to be treated? And that's really the question that they ask because they want to save some money. For me and my money, the wood underneath a deck needs to be treated. That's it. That's where I'm leaving it. Um, can you get away with untreated lumber underneath your deck? Maybe. Is that a risk you want to take with $5,000 of your money? Not me. Yeah, no, I agree. You're, if you're going to invest into building a new deck, just build it correctly and use pressure-treated lumber where it's required. And if it's wet outside, raining, and it's in the weather, then it needs to be pressure-treated lumber. You know, I know a lot of deck builders that build decks in Central Oregon, like you said, that don't use pressure-treated lumber, but the... Uh, ambient humidity level there is at such a level that doesn't require it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I know for me and my money here in the Valley, for sure, I'm using pressure-treated lumber underneath my deck. Here's something to consider when building with pressure-treated lumber. You have to be careful on the type of fasteners and hangers that you use. Simpson Hardware makes a specific coating for pressure-treated lumber. Because pressure-treated lumber is different than it used to be. And it's funny that we still say used to be, because now it's like, what, 30 years it's been this way? Oh, it's been a long time, for uh, sure. They stopped using arsenic, and they started using copper. So copper, they make this azole, and that's what they treat the lumber with. Well, if you know anything about chemistry, which I don't. Me either. Uh, I don't know a little bit here, in that... Two dissimilar metals, when they touch and moisture is added, they create electrolysis. And it will physically eat away that hanger. So what happens is they were making these hangers out of zinc. And then when it touched the copper, 
in the pressure-treated lumber, it would rust and rot away. Oxidize. Oxidize the hanger so fast that it became dangerous. Not just rust. I mean, physically melt that hanger over the course of just a couple years. And it's even worse at the coast. Yeah. So it is highly recommended to use a product that they call Z-Max or hot-dipped galvanized. Or even better than that, stainless steel. Stainless steel can be prohibitive cost-wise because it is extremely expensive to use stainless steel. But if you're building a deck at the coast, for instance, and you're within, you know, a few hundred yards of that water, you definitely want to use stainless steel. Another thing to keep in mind when deciding that stainless steel is what you're going to go with is that there can be an additional time frame to get it. It's not the the uh, demand for stainless steel fasteners and hangers has not caught up, or the, I should say the supply has not caught up to the demand. Exactly. Right? People would love to go straight to stainless steel everything because it lasts forever. Uh, but the fact is, it's so expensive to make that they don't want to keep that on the ground all the time. And so uh, so it can take longer to get it. You can get it, um, but it takes longer to get it. And so add lead time and add money if that's the way you're going to go. But if you're building it at the beach, I'm with Corey. That is the way to go for sure. Yeah, and the same thing goes for fasteners. You can pretty much walk into any par lumber company and buy stainless steel deck fasteners. Those are pretty commonplace because people building hardwood decks or even cedar decks, you want to use that stainless because it doesn't stain the wood too. I Mm -hmm. mean, not that that's why they call it stainless steel, but that is the case here is it doesn't, if you use hot dip galvanized nails or screws in cedar, it will leave little black marks in your cedar. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing about stainless steel fasteners is that uh, a a non-stainless steel fastener tends to uh, reach a point where it doesn't want to go uh, move around. Back and forth causes it to break as opposed to give, where stainless steel in a situation where you're fastening something that moves around a lot with the climate change, the stainless steel has give and bend to it and it stays together. Whereas another one, the head might pop off or it might shear off. Yeah. So it's malleable. Yeah. Stainless steel is malleable and, and it lasts longer in that way as well. So it is all around a better way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about joist sizes and beam sizing. Uh, again, if you're building a deck that's right on the ground, this probably isn't something that you need to be terribly concerned about. I mean, you can add joists, you can put piers everywhere. It's not really going to affect you. Uh, but if you're building a deck with any sort of height to it, three feet, four feet, five feet off the ground, you're definitely going to want to make sure that your joists are sized correctly and that your beams are sized correctly. Uh, you can come into almost any par lumber company and they can help you go down that path. There are also simple span charts that you can look at, download, uh, to make sure that you're putting in the correct sizing there. Yeah, here's another thing that I want to talk about, but it's going to take a little bit longer, so I'm just going to touch on it before we go to a break. There is an opportunity to build your deck in a couple of ways. Joist on top of your beam, joist hanging from your beam, and then cantilever. But that's kind of a deep subject, so we'll come back to that right after the break. You're listening to Tony Corey. Don't go away.
the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. When it comes to big or small projects around the home, Tony and Corey have got the know-how and the answers to make your life just a bit easier. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for staying with us. Today on the show, we're talking about things to consider when building a deck. But I did want to say, if you haven't already, go check out our Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest pages. We're at WW Home Show. Or you just can just search WW Home Show, and those will come right out. Make sure you follow us, hit subscribe, and you know all of those things. Like, what else can you do? You comment. Can, yeah, you can follow. You can you can put one of those little thumbs ups. You can click a heart. Let us know heart. that you love us. All of those things can be done. Do all of those things. You know they need a thumbs down. <laughs> what if you see someone you're like, nah. I mean, they have them sometimes. I guess you just leave. Ours them. doesn't have one because nobody wants to thumbs down our stuff. <laughs> we just have thumbs ups on ours. You just need to uh, nasty comment. <laughs> no. Anyway, yeah, do it. We like all kinds of feedback, specifically because any feedback from our listeners uh, makes us better. Whether it's whether it's positive feedback or negative feedback, we actually got an email just recently, last week. Uh, from a listener who said, hey, I listened to your show. And he said, I really liked your show. And there was a lot of really good information in there. But something you said I disagree with. And I have personal experience. And he laid it out for us. Hey, look, this is what you said. This is what I know. And uh, I think you should be careful about saying that going forward. And I absolutely love that. Because you know what? Corey and I haven't done everything or been everywhere. We have a lot of experience in this field. And we share what we know. And sometimes our experience doesn't match somebody else's experience. And we wouldn't want to say on the air, hey, look, this product we used wasn't good if somebody else had a good experience with it. Just because ours wasn't good doesn't mean the product is bad altogether. And sometimes we're not careful enough to make sure we're saying our experience wasn't good. That doesn't mean the product's not good, right? And so we need to be conscious about that. And we really appreciate uh, that. Uh, feedback that we got from that listener. Thank you so much for that. And uh, we definitely want to do the right, we want to do the right thing and be right by our our listeners and, and also by the manufacturers of all the products out there that we talk about. Yeah. Well, one thing to keep in mind is we're weekend warriors who happen to work for uh, a building materials company, Par Lumber, best one in the world. Agreed. So uh, we have a lot of experience there. I've been there 15 years. Tony's been there 30 years. I don't know. Yep. So uh, we just, we know a lot of stuff about a lot of things, but not everything. Right, not so, everything. And we love to hear your uh, comments. Absolutely love to hear any feedback, any and all feedback. Before we went to the break, we were talking about uh, joist size and beam sizes. And I wanted to just address one situation here. Uh, we talked about how much space you're going to have beneath your deck, where you're ledgering it to the house, if that's the way you're doing it, and how much space you have between the, the joist of your deck or the deck surface and the ground. Okay, so if you've got a lot of space there underneath the deck, then you probably will choose to lay your beam out some distance from the house and put your joists on two foot centers or 16 inch centers, depending on the decking that you're using. And you'll probably hang your joists from the ledger at the house and probably set the joists on top of your beam out at the furthest uh, distance of your deck out there. Well, in some cases, 
if you're tight on space, you can actually hang your joist from that beam instead of setting your joist up on top of it. If you set them up on top, then that's gonna you know, be 12 inches of space that you need before you even add your decking. But if you hang them, you can reduce that down to six inches of space. So that would reduce your step up to a deck that is at ground level. And uh, that can make it uh, easier and you don't have to spend as much on fascia wrapping around the outside of the deck to hide the underneath side of the deck. But if you are gonna be sitting your joist up on top of that beam, then there's an opportunity to cantilever and hold the beam and the posts back underneath the understructure of the deck a little bit, kind of hide that from, from the, the visibility. So that's something to consider ahead of time. Um, are you gonna hang your joist from your beam or are you gonna set them up on top? Yeah, and depending on how you do that there, like you said, you can't cantilever if you have a flush beam. Right. So you have to consider that ahead of time. Because your span of your joist, uh, if you are figuring a max span of your joist and then you can't cantilever, then you have to hang that. That's pushing your beam out, and now your joists are going to have to be shorter. Correct. So that's very important. Notable, as you would say, posts... <laughs> Posts and piers are another thing to consider. You were talking about if you were building your deck on a slope. And if you're building your deck on a slope, then you're not probably using pier blocks to hold your posts down at the ground level. If you're building it on a slope, you're going to want to dig down and, and put in probably what we refer to as form tube. Form tube is a very dense cardboard tube that comes in four, eight, or 12 foot lengths. And it's in different di diameters, like a 12 inch, 18 inch, 24 inch round. And this allows you to dig a hole in the ground, drop the tube down there, fill the tube with concrete. And then you can actually put your post uh, into the concrete, uh, or you can put a bracket that's gonna hold your post into the concrete. And that is gonna give you a super strong, sturdy base for your deck that might be located on a slope, or maybe if if you're not sure whether or not that's fill dirt that's in there and it's not native soil, you just wanna make sure that you dig down, get solid dirt, and pour a, a concrete footing that allows you to um, really secure that deck into the ground. Yeah, I mean, you can also put rebar in there if you really wanna make it sturdy. Uh, but then the post base, there are so many different options when choosing a post base. You can do what's called a wet set post base. Uh, essentially what that is, it's a post base, say a, for a 4x4 four four or a 6x6 six six, that has little legs on the bottom of it or a single leg that you slide down into the concrete and then let it sit. They also have uh, a post base that uses what's called a wedge anchor or, a, or some other tie down that you have to hammer drill a hole into the concrete into existing concrete into existing concrete so like if you poured one of those footings or piers you would drill a hole in that set the post base down on that it's adjustable of where you want to put it and then you drill the hole hammer the thing in and then tighten it up so the benefit to those is that you don't have to use you just kind of be in the vicinity versus the wet set version you got to be dead on dead on so you got to be use a lot of math, have your uh, know exactly how far away from the house it's going to be. They have to be orientated correctly because once it's set in concrete, <laughs> literally, literally, 
You're not moving it. Set in stone. <laughs> Your location is set in stone at that point. Uh, so that's yeah, that's that's a very that's a very important thing to consider when you're building the substructure of your deck. And building in a little bit of adjustability is never a bad idea. Yeah, I always prefer to use the the post bases that are adjustable. Plus, they have a little bit of a standoff on them. So you, you set them in there, and then the, the steel on those things are about an inch, so the wood sits off the concrete about an inch tall. Mm-hmm. Kind of makes it a little nice to keep a little distance between that concrete and the wood. All right, we got to take a quick break. You're listening to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for staying with us. Today on the show, we're talking about building a deck. And in the last segment, we were talking about uh, the deck framing. Yeah, we also talked about the ledger board. The ledger board is the board that allows you to attach your deck structure to your home. And providing it's not a manufactured home and you've got the space there to do it, maybe, Corey, in some cases... If this is on the back of the house and it's on a slope, you might have some pony wall to attach to, or you might have an extra tall foundation wall, and you might find yourself attaching your ledger board to concrete. Whichever it is, you'll have to choose the proper fastener to attach your ledger board to the house. Concrete fasteners, of course, if you're attaching to a foundation, or lag screws or ledger locks Uh, that you would use to attach your ledger to a wooden structure like pony wall or maybe the uh, the rim joist or the or the the exterior wall of the home you don't want to you don't want to be cheap here you want to use large um, lag screws that are going to be strong or again i said ledger lock which is a facet master brand of product that's smaller and yet really strong yeah those are actually very good products Another thing to consider there, like you said earlier, is fastening into uh, concrete. You want to make sure th- sure that that concrete wall is stable enough to accept uh, a, a fastener that is designed to go into concrete. You know, some of the CMU block walls, uh, you got to choose the correct fastener for concrete. Uh, another thing with the ledger is to consider how it's attaching to the wall. Uh, you want to make sure that it's flashed properly if it's applied directly to the framing. Uh, and that you also, it's a good idea to put a weather-resistant barrier behind it. So if you have an old deck that was maybe just nailed onto the siding and no positive connection directly to the house, it's always a good idea, in my opinion, to cut away the siding and put that ledger right onto the framing, but you want to make sure that you put a weather-resistant barrier and flashing above it so that no water can potentially get behind there. If that's too difficult, they make product a product called deck-to-wall, a deck-to-wall spacer, to be exact. And what that does is it just creates a gap, a space between 
your deck ledger and the framing. So if water does get back there, it just passes right on through and down to the ground. Yeah, actually intended not to manage the water, but instead just to let it go right down the right down the siding like it normally would and not affect your ledger at all. It's a really good way to do it. I mean, I like that. Uh, technology is great. Um, but I'll tell you what, if, if we've said anything here, what we really need to say is the connection between your ledger and your house is paramount. It yes. is literally paramount. Corey and I have both been standing on a deck that was not properly connected. The ledger board was not properly connected to the house. And that deck, folks, can literally tumble to the ground in any moment. Yes. The ledger is your first line of protection against failure of your deck. And if you've got, you're going to have people on your deck, you do not want to be liable for injury because the deck failed and collapsed and people went down with it. That is a bad, bad deal. And the farther off the ground it is, the more danger is there. Make sure that your ledger board is the the utmost top priority in making sure that it's structurally sound and attached to the house the way that it's supposed to be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, another thing to consider there too is using a product that Simpson makes. They make a hold down that goes on the joists horizontally and then it fastens to the house using threaded rods. So what you would do is you put this hold down. It's called a DTT2Z or a DTT1Z and it goes horizontally on your joist where it meets the rim board. And then you drill a hole through that, slide threaded rod through there and you put another one on the inside of the house uh, aligned with some framing inside of the house or blocking or, or that sort of thing. And what that does is that makes it, and that's an extra line of defense that adds a lot more sheer capacity to that deck. Because you got to think in an earthquake or something like that, that thing's going to be shaken. And if the only thing holding on there is some lag screws, it could still potentially fail. So they've added this extra piece of hardware. They've invented this thing. And it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it really is. We do sell a lot of those. Well, and the other really good place to use those is at your posts, uh, your handrail posts. Have you ever walked on somebody's deck and walked out to the edge and grabbed onto their handrail? Hmm. And it just doesn't feel terribly secure. 500 a pounds. A little bit of wobble. 500 pounds is what a handrail is supposed to hold back. Wow. 500 pounds. And I have definitely leaned on a handrail that, that there is no way it was holding back 500 yeah. pounds. Yeah. That's exactly what those things are designed for. They go down below, they bolt onto the side of your joist, go through the decking, and then, you know, or, or I'm sorry, through the post to the outside of the rim, and they create just an extra tight bond with the deck itself, with the deck diaphragm. Yeah, it, it is definitely um, a next level stuff. Yeah, I highly recommend them. I absolutely do too. Um, well, so I think that we have covered everything under the substructure we did talk about uh, when we talked about design we talked about picture framing which is uh, if you're going to be running deck boards at, at the perimeter of your deck you're going to sort of frame in that's going to require some extra substructure uh, because those boards will be running perpendicular to the rest of the boards in there you'll have to put blocking in there in order to do that do yeah you, you have um you have a better explanation of how that should be going in there? No, yeah, you, you 
worded it correctly, you okay. have a deck board. Think about how your deck would normally be in all your joists in a line, and then your deck board being perpendicular to your joists. Well, picture framing along the other side, think about a deck board being laid down parallel with the joists. It would just teeter-totter on there. Right, so we'd have to have a second joist that runs along there, but yep. of course it wouldn't be a solid joist. It would be blocking in between each of your joists, which ultimately yep. created a one long uh, structure for that to sit, to tie to. Exactly, so you'd want to put blocking every 16 inches on center. Uh, but the same thing goes for if you're considering putting railing on. You want to look ahead of time and put the required blocking details in the framing of where you're going to put your posts. So you want to have all those posts lined out before you get the deck done. Don't rush. Get the frame built, throw the decking down, and then worry about railing. You also want to know how your deck rail posts are going to attach. If you're using like a Trex rail system that has a, a post sleeve, right? Then you're essentially um, installing a wood post in there, solid, and then you're slipping your Trex post sleeve right over the top of that. Right. Well, there's also handrail out there that posts have a plate at the bottom, a four or five by five plate, and those plates lag screw down to the surface of the deck. And so in those cases, you'll want to have some solid lumber down there to lag screw your posts to. So laying out where your posts are going to be in that instance and making sure that you have extra structure there to attach them to is a good way to go. Yeah, both uh, Timber Tech and Trex and Fortress, they all have their own specific blocking details on what they require in the substructure to be to hold that post tight down. Because that's what you want. You want that thing so tight that it's not going to wobble or move at all. Because again, you've all been on those decks where you walk up to the edge and if you feel like you're going to push hard enough, you're just going to fall off the deck. That's not what you want. It's definitely not. It's, it's certainly not uh, certainly not what I would want for my deck. You want it to be very strong and very solid. Yeah. And taking the time to put proper structure in the places where your posts are going to be is important. Another place where you put extra structure, under a hot tub. And you said you need to get that engineered, but whatever you do, don't forget, if you're going to put a hot tub on there, you definitely want to make sure that you've beefed up that part of the substructure so that it can carry all that extra weight. we got to take a quick break. When we come back, more things to consider when building a deck. You're listening to Tony and Corey, your weekend warriors. We'll be right back. Listening to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show, built by Par Lumber. Now, here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Thanks for staying with us today in the show. We're talking about things to consider when building a deck, and we spent a lot of time talking about the you know the location, your uh, permits, CCNRs you know, waterproofing, those sorts of things. And we talked a lot about the substructure, but I think now it's time to get down to the finishing of the deck. You know, what sort of decking are you going to put down on it? Hopefully by this time, you've already made the decision. I'm going with composite or I'm going with cedar for, you know, as a matter of fact, but there's a lot to consider 
uh, when making that choice. In my opinion, Trek stacking is the way to go. Mm-hmm. It is no, you know, virtually no maintenance. It's very, well, I shouldn't say no maintenance. It's low maintenance. In comparison to a cedar deck, you're paying a lot for the wood up front, plus you're paying to stain it or put down some sort of, you know, penetrating oil or or something like that. Every what? What do you think, Tony? Every year? Every yeah, other a year? A lot of people say every year. Some products say every two years. Uh, it depends on... It depends on its um, location, location, right? Obviously, and its exposure to the sun and the and the rain. And so, a high exposure deck up on a hill, you know, is going to need it more often. Um, but if it's got low exposure, or if it's got a cover, a porch cover covering a, a large portion of it, then it's going to last longer. The finish is going to last longer. It depends also on how much use it gets. So, there's a lot of things that play into that. Um, but you, you should be prepared to do something with it every year. It's probably going to need to be washed properly at the very least yeah. every year. Because dust and things that fly around in the air, I mean, just like gutters, you say, I don't have any trees around my house, so my gutter doesn't have anything in it. Well, guess what? It's still got stuff in it. I got a two-story house and no trees around me, and it's still got stuff in it. And you got to get up there and clean it off. The deck's going to have stuff. It's going to need to be cleaned. Because if you don't clean it, and then you keep walking around on it, grinding that dirt into the into the surface of the deck is certainly not doing anything good for it. Right. So you want to keep that off. Animals walk on it. And uh, you, you want to get all the, keep that dirt off of it every year. So it definitely needs to be washed. But so does your Trex deck. It needs to be washed every year, too. Um, but finishing it maybe every year or every two years. Yeah. There is no... Uh, sealer or anything like that that goes down on a composite Trex deck. That's correct. It's uh, They use what's called now a capped composite. Uh, a lot of people know or had experience with Trex when they first came out. It was plastic, it was wood, it was smashed together, and they created this composite. Well, it's still made out of the same material, but they realized that that sort of product was still susceptible to staining. It was still susceptible to uh, fading, scratching. So then they, you know, over the years, they made their product better and better and better. And then they finally came up with what's called a capped composite. And what they do is they take a high-density polyethylene and they wrap that deck board on three sides, the side, the top, and the other side, leaving the bottom to be able to breathe. Because no matter how much, you know, if you sealed any of that out completely, you're still going to have end cuts and moisture is still going to work its way in there into those wood fibers. So it has to have a way to get out. That's why they do that. So, But the benefit to that is it creates almost an impenetrable cover over that deck. So it sits on top. It helps prevent uh, fading. It doesn't hardly fade at all. Uh, It doesn't uh, scratch very easily. And the best part about it, it doesn't stain very easily. So you can drop that red wine on it. You can, you know, drop barbecue grease on it, and it will s- still come out. A little bit of scrubbing, but it won't stain the deck. So that's, to me, that's fantastic. One really great thing about that plastic is that mold and mildew will not grow in it. It won't grow in it, right? However, what will happen is dirt and and fibers and things that organic material that's in the air and around that will land on it. And then mold and mildew can grow on that. 
but it won't be able to attach itself to that plastic or polyethylene, you called it, uh, capstock. So it's easy to wash off and, and clean up where wood, if mold and mildew starts to grow on wood, it's a lot harder to get that off. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, and the other benefit to Trex decking is that it's made from 99% recycled material. It might be not 99. It's like either 97, 98 or 90. It's high percentage yeah. of, of I was recycled. thinking 95, but yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's made high. Of, the only thing non-recycled is the capped composite. And yeah, that's a, to keep a consistent color. Yeah, I think it's made out of post-consumer milk jugs and plastic bags, grocery Mo- yeah, sacks Yeah, mostly and kind of plastic stuff. bags. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy, crazy how many plastic <laughs> bags go into it. Yeah. Uh, Corey and I actually did a, a remote uh, radio show one time in Vancouver at a grocery store. And uh, they were promoting the recycling of plastic bags, the plastic bags that you use to... Uh, carry your groceries home, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times people will put those plastic bags in their recycle bin at home. Well, you're not supposed to do that at all. That's def- That gums up the works. There is a specific way to recycle those bags. And when we were talking to the recycling company that was talking to us about all this stuff, they said, yeah, one of our number one customers is Trex. Yeah. They buy literally almost every single thing that we recycle. Yeah. And so uh, they use a lot of that. And they've got that figured out after all these years, for sure. And it's not just plastic bags. It's any plastic film. So if you get that plastic film on anything, on your you know, toys or anything that you buy that comes with that thin layer of plastic that's a film, you can shove it in the, the grocery bag that you get already. And next time you go to the grocery store, they have those bins there. Yeah, Almost every grocery store. Plastic You've probably film, never even seen it. Recycling bins, yeah. Yep. So you can shove it in there and feel good about yourself. Absolutely. And you're not running it through the, the system and, and clogging up the works. Uh, so that's great. Trex is a great product. I agree with you. And now this year, um, you know, they've got a, a, a really inexpensive price competitive line. Their entry line is price competitive with wood, which makes them even more attractive. Yeah, it's actually even less yeah. than 2 by 6 cedar. Yeah, absolutely exciting things going on with Trex. For me, since you chose Trex, for me, Corey, it's hardwood. My choice is hardwood. Now, I know it's more expensive. I know it's more labor-intensive. But I'll tell you what, it's got some great properties that you just can't get in a composite-type material. I love hardwood because it's gorgeous Um, because it is super dense and because over the years my hardwood deck which I have now is 12 years old and over the years it seems to get richer and richer a little bit darker and unlike you and you're getting poorer yeah and I absolutely love the look and feel here's something else about it you know that the hardwood deck that I have when I walk on it it has a sort of um, familiar creek when you walk on it that gives, you know, the feeling of, of an old deck that, that has been around for a long, long time. You know, I'm not, people don't normally want creeks, right? But there's something about a familiar creek that is, um, luxurious. I think it is. I really do. And I love my deck, all of its little creakiness and, uh, and all of its little things. I love it. It's super durable. And after 12 years, it's, uh, it's continuing to perform for me like I hoped that it would. And I love cleaning it and putting a new coat of stain on it. And uh, it's, it's just literally, for me, it's the luxury that I'm so glad that I have. Yeah, it does look fantastic. But one thing about your deck 
is it is hardwood, but you still went with a metal railing because we both know that staining wood railing is the worst. Agreed. That is the worst physical job you could ever have staining any sort of wood pickets. Yeah. Not terrible. Not fun at all. Definitely. You helped me install my uh, my wrought iron handrail that I have on, on my deck, and they look beautiful together. The wrought iron handrail is black. My deck is uh, gets darker and darker every year, which I absolutely love, and it's beautiful. Also, my hardwood decking was edge-grooved and is blind-fastened, and it's gorgeous. I absolutely love it. I was able to go with a 1x4 uh, hardwood deck because it spans longer because it's so dense and it's absolutely gorgeous we need to take another break when we come back we're gonna wrap this baby up and listen to tony core your weekend warriors don't go away you're listening to the weekend warriors home improvement show built by par lumber now Here's Tony and Corey. Hey, welcome back to the Weekend Warriors Home Improvement Show. Today we're talking about things to consider when building a deck. Uh, The last segment, we were just talking about decking, the difference between composite, uh, between wood, between hardwood. And, you know, there's a couple other terms that you're going to hear when you go in and buy, uh, you know, decking and it's hidden fasteners and curved. Those are two kind <laughs> yeah. of weird yeah, terms. Terms. Curved is a term that you're gonna hear when you're buying cedar. Cedar two by six decking a lot of times is uh, made with a kerf on the back. And what that is is little saw marks uh, that are that the is ran in the board like every inch along the bottom of the decking. And it's meant to prevent uh, cupping and twisting and bowing, all those weird things that wood does. Uh, So that's what that is. Uh, Hidden fasteners are fantastic. There's a lot of different options on the market today. Camo tool that uh, screws it in at an angle through the side. Uh, Tony used, uh, what did you use? Tiger claw? Tiger claw, yeah. Uh, Those are a different sort of fastener on the side. Uh, Most of the composite deckings come with a groove already grooved into the side so that you can use their clips systems that they've in, invented and designed for their own products. I highly recommend hidden fasteners for a couple of reasons. Uh, any sort of deck surface. If you're screwing a screw through the top of it, all of the elements, the water and the dirt and all that stuff, is going to get inside of that screw hole, and it's going to create problems. Any way you look at it. Mm-hmm. So if you can put a fastener into that deck board that never sees any sort of weather, that's the way to go, yep, in my absolutely. opinion. Yeah, not creating a hole in the surface of your otherwise perfect deck board is always a good way to go. Yeah. So uh, let's jump on to railing. There's a lot of options when it comes to railing, and you know my opinions on wood. I uh, don't necessarily love wood railing, uh, but if you are going to go wood... Uh, it does look nice, but consider aluminum pickets. They make pickets, Fortress Company makes individual round pickets that you can put uh, in between a rail top and bottom rail. Wood. And uh, it looks great. You don't have to stain 
you know, 250 pickets. It is notable that a wood rail built out of wood, entirely out of wood, or a deck decked with treated like elite decking, two by four or two by six elite decking, two by eight elite decking or two by 12 elite decking uh, fascia boards. It is notable that there are they are the least expensive ways to go. A treated deck, honestly, treated deck is about $1.50 a foot. And wood rail, you know, maybe somewhere around $22.5 to $25 a foot for wood rail. And uh, everything else you choose is going to be a little bit more expensive than that. The least expensive decking otherwise is about $1.75 a foot. Uh, the least expensive probably handrail is about $30 a foot. So you can save a little bit of money. You're adding work to your deck. But you can save a little bit of money by using treated elite decking or wood handrail. Depends on how you build it, of course. But if you build it the right way, you can do it pretty inexpensively. Yeah. Another thing to uh, consider would be cable. I really like the look of cable rail. It's very modern looking. Uh, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. You can put cable through wood posts. Again, you're dealing with wood. Um but you can also get aluminum posts with cable running through that. There's lots of ways to do that as well. Um, one of my favorite looks, though, and we actually did a YouTube video on this recently that will get posted up, uh, Rod Rail. Trex makes a product called Rod Rail, and it's horizontal aluminum rods. Mm -hmm. And it looks Great. awesome. Yeah, it does. I put it in my home uh, upstairs in the inside of my home. And uh, it worked out perfect because I wanted a, a modern look, and it uh, it works inside or out. So highly recommend t checking that out, Trex Rod Rail. Yeah, it is absolutely a gorgeous product. There's no question about it. And honestly, we did a little video on installing it, and it was a lot easier to install, I think, than either of us thought it was going to be. Yeah, it was. I mean, we followed the directions uh, verbatim, and uh, it came out absolutely great. So Check that out. Absolutely. Um, there's other things, Corey. After you've chosen the decking and you've chosen the railing and you've got that done, there are so many more things. Accessories and finishes for your deck. How do you choose what you want and what you don't and what's available there? Well, I mean, that's the thing is you got to kind of consider ahead of time. You know, a couple maybe accessories might be a bench or a planter built into the deck. Uh, or some maybe some fascia, or a covered porch, or a covered patio, or a pergola. A lot of these things, I think, you should consider before, again, before you frame that deck. If and you, you kind of close off some of those framing opportunities uh, down the road. Yeah, if you've got a second-story deck, and you've got a pet that you might want to let out onto the deck, uh, maybe a gate on your handrail is a good way to go. I mean, then you can keep them from running down or falling down the stairs or whatever. Yeah. That's a that's a very good idea. But I'll tell you what, if lighting is in your wheelhouse, right, if it's something that sounds like something you would enjoy or can afford to add to your deck, man, oh, man, a properly lighted deck is absolutely out Stunning. outstanding. I just absolutely love it. You're actually uh, adding lighting anywhere outside the home. Uh, to the landscaping or on your deck is absolutely, um, like you said, it's stunning. And it's something I love to do. It um, makes you want to hang out there. lighting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I added a, a back patio a 
cover to my back patio and put some lights up in that thing. I love turning the lights on and going outside. I mean, it's a really great feeling. So lighting is something that you can do after the fact. But like we mentioned earlier in the show, thinking about that ahead of time, uh, you do have to run those wires inside your post sleeves or or through your decking and down underneath and choosing where you're going to put your transformer, which is ultimately going to run your lights, is also important. You want to get that next to a power source. Yeah, I tell you, I've seen this a lot, is the solar-powered deck lights and the solar-powered post caps. I'm not a huge fan. Mm. I've I've purchased solar-powered stuff because I wanted outdoor lighting that... You know, I didn't have to run all of the transformers and do all the wire because it is it, it is rather expensive. I mean, when you really break it down, there's a lot of labor there and the components themselves aren't extremely cheap. So, you know, you have to consider that. So I went out and did the solar thing. You know, you buy them, they, they're standalone, you stab it in the ground or put it wherever and it's done. Well, in the Pacific Northwest, or at least where I live in the valley, you know, we don't get a lot of sun for half of the year. And they just get pounded with rain. And no matter how well they're manufactured, you know, those things just sitting in water all night, every night for what? How, how often does it rain here? Yeah, 300 a days a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they just don't get enough yeah. sun and they, they die. I don't know. I'm not a big fan. I feel like if I had one major drawback, I would say for the money that you're spending on them, I would say they're just not really bright. I think they, they never really, you don't ever really get their maximum uh, capability because I don't think they ever really get as much of a charge as they should. It's really overcast or raining, like you said. So I feel like they're just never bright enough. Um, but you get uh, you get some low voltage LED lighting for your deck, and it will be nice and bright. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things that you should consider is fascia around yes. the perimeter. Yep. And uh, riser material, and what that is, a riser is on your stairs. You have deck boards on the surface that you step on, but the backs of those steps, as you're walking up, Mm -hmm. you can choose to leave those with nothing. You can have them hollow, open down below, or you can have them as, I've seen people use deck boards there, or they make a product called Riser, uh, especially if you're doing um, composite. Mm -hmm. It's a seven and a quarter inch tall piece of wood or composite that's a half an inch thick. And it fits in there perfect, really finishes it off. This is a great opportunity also to use um, contrasting colors separately from the color of your deck. Like we talked about picture framing your deck. It's a great opportunity to use an accent color for your fascia boards and also for the risers on your stairs. Getting multiple colors on your deck with your handrail. You know, if you're buying a composite handrail, you can have different colored top caps, bottom cap. You can have different colored balusters, different colored posts, and adding colors, as long as the colors work good together, can really make your deck pop and look extra special. So I agree, take an opportunity there and do something really cool with your fascia boards. Yeah. The last one I want to mention is to consider on your stairs to have an ADA grab rail. Uh, If you have a wood rail or if you have a metal or steel or treks or whatever, it's always a good idea to have a grab rail that you can physically grab all the way around i've seen it where people take like a two by four and just nail it to the sidewall well that doesn't typically meet code so trex makes a really good one it's called ada grab rail we have a video about that too so you should check that out well that's all the time we have folks thank you so much for tuning in this has been another episode of your weekend warriors right here on weekend warriors radio network have a great week